0: DIY 20 at checkout to save 20%.
1: Think you know the Brooks Ghost?
0: Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more.
2: For me, when you're doing a grouse dog, there's a finesse with it, there's a calmness that needs to be with it, there's a bonding between you and the dog so that you're working as a team together.
0: Do you have trouble physically making it through long hunts? Is your dog always giving you that angry look telling you to keep up? You train your dog, but now it's time to train yourself. Rocky Mountain Hunt Strong is the company for any hunter that is looking for an effective fitness routine to get healthier and be able to hunt longer and harder. This company has merged fitness and the passion of hunting to help people like you and me continue to do what we love. From the Rockies to the Smokies and every field or prairie in between, this company can get you ready to go longer, cover more ground, and recover quicker. Go to RockyMountainHuntStrong.com and see their program for yourself. Use a discount code GDIY to save 15% and get to work. Train harder, hunt stronger, and recover faster. Welcome back to another week of GDIY, everybody. Adam, what do we have
1: going on this week? Well, we get to listen to Ann Jandernoa uh, tell us about her setters and her training methods and everything else. Yeah, this will be a real interesting
0: listen to for a lot of people. I know she's kind of made the podcast round, and she's talked about her scout and hunt app a lot, and uh, we touch on that a little bit at the end, but really this is to talking dogs with her and her breeding setup and what got her into it. a little bit of sled dogs and, and a little more interesting take uh, from what you really get with – And typically, I know Project Upland does like an annual episode with her talking about the cover and app, and it's fascinating. I listen to it every year, but we want to just get her on and talk her dogs because you don't hear about that very often. Yeah,
1: and and her dogs are impressive. I've been privileged to be able to hunt with one of them uh, last fall, someone that's got one of her dogs. And, um, you know, just from talking to her, her, her different training methods and her breeding selection and all that, it's it's impressive and it makes me kind of makes me want to get a setter. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you'll you'll hear in the episode I even challenge her to come down to the to the southeast do some grouse hunting, get out of the north a little bit. We'll see if she takes yeah. us up on that offer, but uh but yeah, other than that, you know, there there's a few things to touch on and uh you know, first and foremost, I think uh it's springtime right now if you haven't noticed and uh that means you need to be prepared for a few things with your dogs in the field, you know obviously heat heat related stuff, but also uh grass seeds you you really need to be focused in on that, especially if you're around the some of the really harmful seeds like foxtails and stuff like that but uh yeah, we went out field training Friday, and Rachel went through some thick stuff, and she came out wheezing and and uh, it lasted throughout the night, so I had to take her to the vet Saturday. Nothing serious, but you know, a little antihistamine and and he cleaned her right up, and she's good to go. But it was a grass seed issue, and yep. so just keep that on, you know, at the front of your mind while you're training your dog this time of year. We got to get out and do what we have to do, but there's it poses challenges, and you know, eat grass seed blue algae when that starts blooming real bad in yep. certain areas of the state just be smart and check their all-
1: eyes for ticks or not ticks check their <laughs> eyes for for grass seeds because they'll get grass seeds in their eyes so oh yeah you saw and, you, know, you know
0: even friday lucy didn't get a grass seed up the nose but you know i have saline and so when you're going, out. And when you're going through that stuff you rinse out the eyes and also another good reminder to to have a, a really good vet near you uh you know hopefully you y'all have a good relationship and it doesn't cost you a fortune to do everything, but you know, we have a really great vet down here. Shout out to veterinary associates of Murfreesboro for helping me out. You know, Saturday morning, didn't have a delivery or delivery, uh, an appointment. (laughs) Yep. And, uh, they just worked me in and, and yeah, took 10 minutes and we're good to go. Took care of you. Yeah. Took care. And, uh, yeah, other than that, you know, the, uh, spotlight last month was rough grouse society. And as hopefully most of you know, our spotlight companies, we donate a portion of our Patreon proceeds every month to to that specific company. And uh, we usually pick just one winner from our Patreon to uh, get a little bit of swag from the company. RGS actually sent us a bunch of different hats and like little luggage tags and stuff like that. So all of our Patreon members that would like one, they get a RGS hat. Yep. Just hit us up, get us your
1: address and we'll, we'll get a hat to you. Yeah, absolutely. Until we run out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And so we have a, another interesting company this week coming up for the, for the month of June to cover on the spotlight company. So be looking forward to that. But yeah, I mean, if you want to support RGS and the previous spotlight companies and just, you know, it, it goes a long way in helping them out. It gets the word out, but you know what little bit we can contribute. We, we, we throw their way so if you want to help support that and all the different companies we have on be sure to check out our patreon at patreon.com forward slash gundog It yourself and while you're at there you know follow us on social media facebook instagram hit that subscribe button leave us a rating review share it that goes a long way and uh real quick we did just want to thank everybody for being a little patient last week we had a a bit of an issue launching the episode last week with yeah, our, a lot of an issue. Yes, it, <laughs> it, there it was a crazy issue with our streaming platform, and it took all day to uh, rectify. So we we just wanted to thank everybody for being patient. And also the ones that reached out to let us know that there were, was an issue to begin with. And you know, the, the people that were still having issues, we got them straightened out. So hopefully that did not happen again, but everybody was cool about it. You know, I didn't get any mean messages saying they lost sleep, that they didn't get to hear us first thing in the morning, Tuesday.
1: Yeah. It should, if you downloaded the one that was messed up, you should be able to delete that one. If you want to go back and listen to that episode. And it was on behavior theory really good episode one of my favorites so far (laughs) it it Um, was really good we got a lot you got the one that's messed up you know it doesn't have me in there uh (laughs) and not that i'm important but it's just (laughs) weird when people are talking and there's a A gap of no one talking um you can delete it and then re-download it and it'll work for you
0: we had adam for 18 minutes and then he was gone after that
1: I (laughs) i just got up and walked out
0: but uh yeah so hopefully we don't have any more issues with that but yeah you brought up last week's episode with angie we got a lot of really good feedback on that episode a lot of people were curious about the operant classical conditioning and the four quadrants and if you haven't listened to that you you need to go listen to that because yep. it, it really explains how how dogs how you can communicate to your dogs more appropriately you understand the methods that you're actually trying to apply and it, it's really fascinating i find myself now ever since we had that conversation with her and then grayson of lost highway kennels it just talking about this behavior theory I'm considering those approaches while I'm training my dog every time I'm out now. yeah
1: every every person we interview I learn one or even a few things uh, but when we interviewed her I, I learned like probably 10 or 12 things you know and it's <laughs> it's changed changed the way I train a little bit or at least made me think about how I'm training and and be aware of what I'm doing
0: absolutely and that's what this is all about you know we're not pros we're learning along with you as we talk to the more experienced people out there and there's a million different ways to skin a cat and yeah so unless you have anything else i say let's go ahead and get to ann and they can the listeners can get what they came for There we go if you're currently in the market for a kennel then be sure to check out gunner kennels gunner kennels is the only kennel that's five-star crash rated from the center for pet safety the double-wall rotomodal construction ensures it holds up in all types of weather and conditions. Also, Gunner Kennels has a lifetime warranty. These kennels are built to last a lifetime, and Gunner stands behind that. Gunner also has all the accessories you could need from fan kits to help keep them cool, performance and orthopedic pads to help keep them comfortable and ready to go after long travels, and even tie-down straps to help ensure there's no worries for the kennel moving or sliding around in your truck. So if you need man's best kennel for man's best friend, head on over to gundogityourself.com and click on the Gunner link. Be sure to purchase your kennel, accessories, and even gift cards for holidays and birthdays through our link, and it will go a long way in helping out the podcast. All right, everybody, we have Ann Gendernaw on the line. And how you doing tonight?
2: Doing real good, and yourself?
0: Living the dream, can't complain over here. So where are you calling from tonight?
2: Uh, Northern Wisconsin, and we had a skiff of snow this morning. It was well below 30 degrees, and the wind's been biting today.
1: Oh, my goodness. Snow on the ground. I guess <laughs> that's probably still normal about this time of year up there. No, it's called a
2: skiff. Oh. A skiff of snow. Okay. And that skiff means it'd be like what maybe some people call it dusting. Okay. It's um, like someone was shaking the baby powder out in the sky.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, it was about 70 degrees here today, so pretty warm down this way.
2: I'll keep the temperatures up here. It's good dog training weather.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that it is.
2: Speaking of which,
0: how long have you been uh, in the bird dog world?
2: Um, Probably getting right a little over 20 years now.
1: Wow, that's a long time. And uh, I think a lot of folks have probably heard heard of you before um but for those that haven't just give us a little background on you started with sled dogs how'd you get from sled dogs Mm -hmm. to to bird dogs
2: um decided to jump off the side of a pickup truck and blow my knee out (laughs) well i guess
1: it turned out good that you're uh dealing with bird dogs now
2: well, it was interesting. I mean, long story short, I did a lot of racing of the sled dogs in sprint racing in Canada as well as in the U.S. in the Midwest. And it was all about speed, and I bred my own dogs there for a number of years. I probably had sled dogs about 25 years. And um, it really was a thrill to be on the back of the runners with, with a team just flying. I mean, we're talking 20-pound sled. I've been clocked at 28 miles an hour on, uh, and just whipping around, just screaming those corners. It was, it's awesome.
0: So so but, do, you, do you miss that at all? Because me and my wife, we've actually been watching a lot of life below zero during this quarantine deal. And so yeah. they have a bunch of sled dogs and I'm, I'm just sitting there. I'm like, man, that just looks like a big hassle to be honest. A lot of dogs to feed and, and hook up to the sled, but people have to love it because you know, the people that are into it, they're, they're really into it.
2: It's addicting, and I guess you have to be the right person, but for me you, what you've probably been seeing is distance, so it's a lot slower, but you hook up you know four dogs isn't much, but you hook up six, eight, ten, twelve or more dogs, <laughs> and you're you're matching them and it' it's like white knuckle rut cut- you know cornering on one edge and just twisting that sled with all the force you have and To make to just skittering around the corner and then whipping it back up and the dogs are just flying and and everything is in I mean, you match your dogs to the balance to the speed to the gait and everything and just (laughs) Wow. Nothing like it.
1: That's awesome. So let's back up a little more. How did you get started with sled dogs?
2: Yeah, I visited Alaska. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> literally, sexy, so, you know, within two months, I had sled dogs. <laughs> I was getting started.
1: Everything seems so simple. How'd you get into sled dogs? Well, I visited Alaska. How'd you get out of them? <laughs> Fell out of a truck <laughs> or jump, jumped out of
2: a truck? Well, it's true. Well, you know how you grab the side of the pickup truck and you flip yourself over the side, and you you know it's like you're doing a vault type thing. Um, someone forgot to tell me he's getting too old for that. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so what happened is, is that, you know, I used to run a lot of logging crews in the UP of Michigan and, uh, I'd get stopped by these guys, you know, all dressed up in orange with nice pants. And I'm thinking, why are you guys going out hunting and looking that nice? Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I was used to throwing on, you know, my worst clothes, grabbing the shotgun and I'd walk the trails because I didn't have a dog. I never started with a the dog. But these guys would stop me. Where's a clear cut? And I thought, you you have ever lost your mind? <laughs> Why do you want to go on those things? Well, this happens so much. And the guys are actually sometimes buying me breakfast or lunch or something like that because wherever I put them, they were happy. <laughs> so, you know, they come up all scrapped. You know, one of the guys have a cut on his cheek and all that. And I'm thinking... You've been in that clear cut again. Yep. <laughs> so so long story short, the old light bulb goes on. You know, I bet I could do some maps. Well, after you jump out of the pickup and you can't walk in a cruise timber, you start thinking about what are you going to do with your life while you're laying in bed, not able to do anything. And that's how it happened.
3: Well,
1: so, so once you jumped out of the truck and then ended up, uh, Getting into the bird dog scene. Tell us what you started out with.
2: Well, I started out with, let me back up just a tiny bit. I first started out making maps. The maps led to doing tutorials in the woods. The tutorials in the woods led to guiding, and the guiding led to LHU English pointers because I was always looking for, in my sled dog world, peas in the pod litter. Um, I wanted consistency uh, in gait and build and drive. So I had heard that the LHU's were like that. And uh, I started out with some LHU English pointers. And it was definitely, you know, because I believe, back up, it's like I like the hunt to unfold in front of me. I, I don't want tennis shoes on to try to chase the hunt. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and if you're good at guide, you know, they're paying to see the dog work just as much as they're for being put in position and everything to shoot a bird. So, and it was interesting keeping an LHU where it needed to be.
0: (laughs) I can imagine.
2: And I basically learned by the seat of my pants pants, how to do it um, and learned how to keep the dog in where I wanted them. But, you know, as we all know, the LHUs, the majority of them want to push out more and more and more. And you really have to manage them. Um, by the time they got older, it was push button then, you know, that was the norm for them. But with, um, with this being, uh, uh, the, uh, LHUs, you know, if you didn't start them where you wanted them for the rest of your life, it was a tug of war. And sometimes you get some that were a little bit, they would have been happier, way happier out on the open prairie. Yeah. So, so and, and
1: little, little bit bigger range out of those dogs. It sounds like.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, but everyone has their breeds that they love and I'm not knocking it. Um, uh, you know, you have to, you have to deal with what you like. So,
0: right. So is that quality, the, the main drive that made you switch over to the setters?
2: Well, I didn't know I was going to get a setter until I had a client called up and ordered a bunch of maps. The next thing you know, he was giving me a puppy. Oh and my goodness. <laughs> Yeah, oh yeah, that's how that one happened. And, you know, I always wanted a dark setter. I just thought they were beautiful. And the uh, next thing you know, I had the setter. And then the next thing you know, I had a, had a, was being given a kennel. And um, it was the only problem was everyone was related. So I was looking at where would I go with the breeding. And that has led me down probably a different path than most people would take.
1: <laughs> so, did you end up breeding that setter that was given to you, or did you get into breeding once yep. you were, inherited the,
2: the kennel? Well, I bred the Hughes. did not like okay. where things were going with that. Uh, I did not like the level of drive. It wasn't matching my needs, and it was sort of like I was having this Ferrari that was you know, idling high, you know, that's um, okay, on.
0: So, um, you just needed so a Volvo a and thing. you had a Ferrari in the garage.
2: Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And that I felt like maybe we could put some different tires on or something to slow it down. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the thing is, is that we all have our different style of hunting, and some people love them, and that's great. I mean, that's all you got to do what you want to do or what you, your style that wasn't mine. And I couldn't make clients as happy as I'd like. And you'd get done with a young dog and you were always trying to keep it right where you wanted it to. And really that's where the settle center came in. And yeah, I was happy with what I saw, you know, easy to work with, um, you know, decent gait, uh, biddable, you know, all of that. And I wasn't, having to be, how do you put it, really running the dog. I could actually relax a little bit, you know. You know, you're always looking at the cover. You're looking at how where to shift. You're looking for any time that dog doubles back and gets a scent and you know that there's a bird running on you because typically the grouse will run more than it flies. But, uh, you know, you could relax just a little bit and it took a little bit of the edge off, which probably made me a little bit of a nicer person than on a guided hunt. <laughs>
1: Yeah, hold on! Don't talk to me. I'm trying to figure out where my dogs are.
2: Yeah, I mean, I you know I don't want to hack a dog to keep it where I wanted, and I don't want to yell at a dog and sound like a gal in the supermarket with seven kids going <laughs> every direction. Yep, that yeah, doesn't help you look professional. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, you and I talked on the phone, and I, you know, I have a German short hair and they're known for for being a little more like the like the English pointers that you're talking about, just a little higher revving engine ready to go all the time. And uh, Mm -hmm. I've been able to hunt behind one of your dogs in West Virginia with our mutual friend, Jimmy. And uh, it is, Mm
3: -hmm.
1: you don't have to be constantly looking for, for where the dog is uh, with your dogs. Now, do you think that's a setter thing? Because every, every breed has some generalities, I guess. Um, What's been your experience with, I mean, have you just been delighted with every setter that you've come across?
2: Um it's like anything. There's breeds within breeds almost. Um we as a whole in the US have many different styles of setters. We have the field trial, which would remind you more of the, you know, English pointer. We have the cover dog trial ones, we have the ones that are you know, uh more of a bigger, you know, like the and hemlock, and you have some of the, you know, and then you got setters like what I have. I mean, so much of breeding sometimes is settling on what your need is and then going from there to produce what you want, and so in the first setter I had, you know, as far as a guide dog, I mean, I was been offered plenty of money for her many times. But what i there was things that I learned from uh from running sled dogs. I wanted a smaller dog, um not you know forty pounds or anything, but I wanted to just not quite the bigger bone, a little bit longer, uh just a nice balance, not as heavy in the front um, and the legs need to be more bent in the back so they drive a little bit more from that back and and because when dogs have too straight of a leg in the back, you have a tendency to have issues with, you know, uh, joints. And so there was things that I was wanting to change. And the problem was the kennel, I ended up with basically they were all related. So I had to go looking at everyone's dogs. And then, like I mentioned to you, I created a database so I could start calculating out the c o i. It was not so much that I wanted a line breed. Um, because I, I didn't want to... It would have taken so long to... didn't want to inbreed. I didn't really want to line breed because I had a great hunting desire. That wasn't the problem. It was the build. And the build takes a long time to change in a dog to have consistency in the litter. And I wanted, you know, dogs that basically... They have been bred the same way, you know, but with a higher gene pool from where they're at than what we had here in the states. Uh, And you know, there's a lot of people that think, "Oh, crepes," you know, everything here in the U.S. is, you know, is is it? And I tried to stay open-minded to look a little farther out and reach out, maybe a little farther, do a little bit things a little different, which you know. Everyone has what they want to do. Mine is that, right? So yeah. I don't know if I made—I don't know if I made sense to that. But <laughs> well, let, let's dig I into that a little bit more. Anyone.
0: No, don't worry about that. Yeah. No, we are we live in the hunt dog world. Nobody gets offended here, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right.
1: <laughs> so as long as you don't talk about my dog, we're fine. <laughs> yeah,
2: that sounds familiar.
1: That's right. So. You, you mentioned that
0: you created your own d- database and compiled all this information to make sure that your your breeding coefficient and everything uh, was up to par with what where you wanted it to be at. Did you mm-hmm. use one of the softwares that are available out there? Because I know there's there's a few out there that you, you can purchase and kind of upload the, the pedigrees of the dogs and, and it spits back out yep. the COI. I didn't know yep. if you... Okay.
2: Yep. That's what I did. And, you know, I have over 3,000 entries... And uh I couldn't do COIs out to ten ten generations.
0: Real quick for uh, the, the people okay. that don't know, do you can you explain what the COI is?
2: Well, it's it's the probability of who's being related to who, to make it really simple. Um, if you and let me just grab this, I was getting I knew you would ask this and I can't always remember everything, but uh, it calculates, it provides a score, and the lower the score, the lower the degree of inbreeding. So a zero indicates that you would have no dogs common, basically. Uh, 12.5 would be the genetic, I'm going to read this to you because it gets rather really long. <laughs> it would be a genetic equivalent of a dog produced from a grandfather to a granddaughter mating. 25% would be a father to daughter. Uh, so the lower your COI, the less chances you're, you're decreasing your chances of bringing in traits that are going to have, you know, a genetic influence that could be health, autoimmune. uh, You're trying to decrease the chances of stuff popping up in your bloodlines that are going to be problems. And, you know, we talked a little bit about that, and I am not a uh, science geek uh, as far as genetics or anything like that. I just know that the lower the COI that I can have over a 10 generation pedigree, the better off I am for the, for that, for that dog. And, and basically I'm trying to avoid problems. I don't want to roll the dice and breed with a high COI, because what happens is I'm getting the good and the bad. But if I'm already starting with dogs that are champions overseas with very low COIs, and I can breed to another champion overseas that has low COIs, and they're not related hardly at all. I'm ending up with almost with five percent or less COI, but with two dogs with tremendous ability.
1: Yeah, that's that's that interesting. Yeah. yeah, it makes sense. That's interesting that you're going for the lower COI because I hear a lot of breeders say. You know, this is a, a 20% COI or 15% COI. And a lot of people look at that as a good thing because you're, you have a better chance of reproducing the qualities you want, but you're also getting the bad qualities that come along with those dogs too, right?
2: Right, right. And and so that 25%, you know, is, is basically, it's like, Mating of full siblings will do twenty five percent CLI. Mating of half half siblings produces twelve point five percenting twelve point five percent CLI, and mating of first cousins produces a six point two five. So it doesn't take long to get inbred.
0: No, and I, I've actually heard, like Adam was saying, that that a lot of people they they shoot for 15 or 20 and it kind of depends on the lines and the, and the kennels that they're producing and their goals. But I've heard some people say that, you know, they draw the line at like 30 or 35% overall. And I'm like, man, that's, that's getting pretty high up there in my opinion.
2: It is because you're going to, um, uh, you lose vigor with puppies for fertility, fertility problems happen. A weakened immune system happens. Well, will get 20% on up. So, everyone has their own i'll go with the science on this i don't understand how to calculate it all out i'll let a program do it for me for that but uh you know the science is i'll stick with that because you know people that get my dogs i do the best i can but i don't want problems i'm going to do everything i can to try to avoid problems I mean, the worst thing you could ever have as a breeder is to have a call come back, you know. But I still try to do – I try to do my homework. And if you didn't, I mean, first off, you've got to do your homework. So this is why I went this way. <laughs> um, and the, of the dog matches how I hunt.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's what I'd describe to people that say, you know, when that when they're first getting into – the hunting dog world and they want to know you know why would i spend x amount of dollars on a dog from this kennel and i can get the same breed from this other kennel i'm like you're not buying just the puppy you're buying the time and the homework and the research spent figuring out their lines and what they're producing and their goals for each individual line and and it's kind of a lot of people, you can tell them that till you're blue in the face, and they they don't really understand it until they're kind of in the world and they see the difference that it makes in these dogs.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the facts that really sort of struck me was that they did a study. I mean, I you know we're going from hunting dogs to poodles, <laughs> standard poodle, okay, and they found out that dogs uh, with six point two five percent. COI lived an average four years longer with with compared to dogs that had COIs over twenty five percent.
1: Wow, I'll take the lower yeah. COI then. I mean, all the the time and money that we all put into these dogs, you know, that's a much bigger return on your investment to get four more years out of the dog.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and it's just it's just really important. To me, at least, is that if you're already breeding to something that's really good, make sure the COI is good. And if you're going to pair it up again, you got to have, to me, in my book, I want low COIs. And what I found out is, for me at least, and the way I train, if the dogs are each side is equally good and the COIs are really good. Those dogs, the higher the COI gets, the more that engine's idling. Nine times out of ten, higher. You know, it's like a little Ferrari. You know, and then yeah, and that, a little that, that yeah. It, it's not. You know, I mean, this is the dog that can really go. And you're always going to have at least one. And for me, I'll at least have one in a litter um, that's just a little more like that. Even though I've got really good COIs, but. Overall, the litter as a whole, they concentrate and focus very quick. Now if you're gonna do started pups and you're looking at producing something that goes out in six or seven months, do I want the Ferrari that's idling, that might not be it, that's not being able to really focus, but it can only focus on maybe a couple things? Or do I want the one that's focusing early, that has a good attention span? And it's smooth, and I can start basically, I don't want just point the bird in a field. I want the dog casting as much as I can. Have a calmness around birds, not get ramped up, have work on the patience, because it's not, you know. Take, for instance, a child that's really hyper, hard for them to focus. and that um, you know I was one of those kids growing up one of them that was really wired and I can tell you it was a nightmare trying to focus and as I got older and settled down I can focus longer and to me with a sled dog all I was asking it to do is run as hard as you can and go in one direction and please know how to woe and do G and (laughs) hawk that's all I needed but when you're doing, for me, when you're doing a grouse dog, there's a finesse with it. There's a calmness that needs to be with it. There's a bonding between you and the dog so that you're working as a team together. And the dog casts and won the whistle. <whistles> Comes right back around.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, and you're not screaming, whoa, well, you're not hacking in the woods, you're not you know, you've got a biddable dog that's working with you. Um, and that's what I'm looking for. You know, you're, and, lo- you're looking
0: for a hunting partner. That's yeah, what, that's yeah. it. the partner to sum all that up. That's, that's really what you're, you're after. And I, and I agree, that's what we're after. We've talked about it on this podcast a number of times, you know, everybody has their style and preference and, you know, some people, right they can get as just as much enjoyment going out and hacking their dog and and blaring on the whistle or or riding that you know electric train all the way you know controlling the dog wherever they want in the woods but i'm not one of those people you are clearly not and it's just you know especially if you're having to take clients out and you're guiding you know you need to make sure that everybody in the hunting group and an outing is going to have a good time and and not everybody's going to appreciate a whistle being blown 24 hours a day
2: right right or or you want they came to you or they come people come to the woods they wait all year to go grouse hunting because it's a passion they remember the moments that they had the the flushes the dog work you know And when everything connected or just the beauty of the fall or that morning when there's been a heavy frost and the leaves come clattering down you know like a shower or you drive down the road and the leaves are whipping up behind the truck all those things that come together they want to repeat that every year you know you know they say farmers have 40 years of planting and harvesting about the same way for grouse a lot of grouse hunting um so every year counts and you know when I look at what I was trying to do and and have still been working because it's never finished. What you do, you just you're trying to help people, or you're trying to match a dog up with the right person because not everyone's the right person for for some people's dogs or even my dogs. Um, their style of hunting, you know, and their personalities and what they're really wanting out of the dog, because the time that those two, when they bond and they finally have their lives together, that dog needs to have a great home with the people and be a part of the family. And that dog also has to help be a companion with the guy and to make memories together. Um, yeah you know, absolutely. But, and, how,
0: how do you go about as a breeder? Screen, what's the screening process for trying to match up your buyers with the correct
1: puppy? Nick's and, trying and to get puppy. one of your setters in. <laughs>
2: Um, A lot of talking, you know, and, and a lot of talking back and forth and listening and, you know, trying to ask questions that I can get answers from and ask different questions, you know, because, you know, I just basically spend time talking with people. And I'll be honest with you, nothing's worse for me than to not purposely, but accidentally put the wrong dog in the wrong home or to sell a dog that should have never gone to a home. I mean, it tears me up inside because that's, you just sealed that dog to that fate. Can't do that.
3: Yeah. and, you,
2: and No amount of money will buy you back your, your heart.
1: Yeah. And I mean, this is your, this is your life's work. I mean, you've, you've poured uh, a number of years into breeding these dogs and and trying to line them up with the right home so we tell people a lot when they're trying to find the right dog or the right breeder that one of the indicators is if you get along with the person you know if you if you get along with them and uh you can see yourself being friends with that person then it's it's probably a good indicator to to go with that dog regardless of the breed because um, if you like the people then you'll probably like their dogs so you're kind of doing that well, as a breeder.
2: Oh yeah. I mean, I tell the people you're stuck with me, <laughs> you know, um, you know, I do my best to help, you know, and I've only had a couple of times where it's come to it just, is, it's not gone any farther, um, due to things that were totally out of my control. I can't control the home environment, but I would say over 98% has been a good fit. Um, you learn a lot, basically trying to read people and, you know, someone that calls up and says, I want a puppy doesn't mean they're going to, you can say you want a dog for me. You can say you want a pup for me, but I'm sorry, we're going to have to have this dance together and decide whether or not this is going to work.
1: (laughs) Well, I know you're not going to give away all the, all the right answers to give you for people that want to call and and get a puppy. And and even if they did have the right (laughs) answers, you would be able to kind of screen them out i mean you just get a feel for if it's the right person or not i guess
2: yeah and that's that's it you know you try to i mean i love it when hunters call up that either want to learn or that um this is their first dog and i can help them um or they grew up hunting grouse and dreamt of having a bird dog and you know they grew up doing that in Michigan, and now maybe they're over by the Twin Cities or something like that and in the suburbs, and um, you work with them, and then you get pictures back and and things like that of seeing the dog a part of the family, or you know just out of the blue a message you wouldn't believe the hunt we had um, and that that's that's fantastic I mean because you know you want every dog to work for the person. Yeah, And if it doesn't, then both the person and the dog are miserable, miserable. Right.
0: Well, let's, let's go ahead and get into the training with your dogs. When you, you just said that you like it when somebody first comes up to you and, and maybe they're a beginner and just they're wanting to learn. How do you advise them on to go about training with your, with your setters? Well,
2: most of the people that do, um, they, Pre-COVID, okay. Yeah. Um, the, the, we, let's look at it that way right now. So much has changed since even a month and a half ago. Sure. Uh, but but I'm more than happy. You know, I've got a young guy that wants to come up right now, but I'm not comfortable with what's all going on. Um, you know, so we're just sort of biding our time. And uh, he wants to learn. He wants a pup he's willing to come up and do some homework with me, you know, and to learn and be a part of things and to see. And I understand not everyone is able to do that uh, because they may live in Ohio or they may live, you know, someplace else. If they're the means, I would tell them to get a started pup or a started dog and then go from there. And so that they can learn some from the dog. Um, And then I work with them over the phone or we talk with videos or they come in and they do some, some lessons with me. Uh, The training of my dogs, you know, it's funny. I wrote a book for, um, it's over 100 pages. It's like a manual for when someone gets my dog. (laughs) (laughs) And and it was for when I really had U.S. dogs, and now I've had to change. I'm going to have to write another one for the lines that I have now because there are some definite, definite differences. So... um, you know, right so now.
0: So you're saying if I buy a puppy from you, I get a free book? Because that's an easy way to sell my wife. She's a sucker for a buy one, get one, uh, sells and <laughs> and all that. I can just say, hey, look, if I buy a puppy, then I get a free book. She might let me
2: do that. Yeah, let's put it this way I have a litter that just was born here back around day before Easter. There's 10 pups. They're already gone. Six of them are going out as starter pups. Um, rarely will I sell a pup to someone that hasn't gone through having a hunting dog and has been somewhat successful with it. That's interesting. That knows I, how to hunt.
1: You know, I, we, we talked about this before, but a lot of times when you see, uh, start a dog for sale, it, it can be a red flag. It could be a dog that's, uh, mm-hmm. that's left over that they, that the breeder couldn't get rid of that puppy. So now they've kept it around and. Because it's around, they're training it, and now they just increase the price and sell it as a started dog. But that's kind of the plan with, with a, a number, usually about half, it sounds like, uh, of your dogs, is that they're going to go out as started dogs anyways. How did you...
2: Or started puppies.
1: Or started puppies. Okay, so tell us the difference in a started dog and a started
2: puppy. Started puppy is going to go out somewhere between six and seven and a half months of age. And then the started dog has a lot more training on it. A lot more polished. Okay. Um. The started puppy. Yeah. The started puppy's got gun broke. It's eighty five percent house broke.
3: Yeah.
2: Um. And it, that all? That, that, that's a seller for the wife.
1: Eighty five percent. No guarantees here. Okay.
2: <laughs> well, here's the thing. If they're not paying attention, I can't help that. And that's yep. why I said, cause I had another guy sort of laugh. 85% I said, do you pay attention 100% of the time? My wife tells me no. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so so the 15% is
1: not to account for the, the dogs making a mistake. It's to account for uh, the owner not paying attention.
2: Yeah. Yeah, That's that's the way I feel is that. Paying for attention or maybe the pup goes into a family, you know, the started pup or started dog goes into a family where there's a lot of strife and turmoil and it's the worst place one of my dogs could be. And you're going to have issues when you put an animal from a calm setting into a volatile setting and you're new and maybe you're yelling at your kids and stuff like that. I mean, what do you think it does to that dog? Yeah.
1: They're just not used to that at all. That makes sense. So with no. the with the puppies and and the dogs, whenever you start any of these dogs, what kind of training are you doing with them?
2: Well, to get lead broke, of course. Um, we also from there. Let's just say we start with a puppy. Um, you start out with you know having them come to you. I work on range because I like everything to sort of like the dogs to start out with floating at half of gun range or even closer when they're young because if they're in thick cover, it's hard to get to them. And uh, you can't tell what a young pup is doing. So you can almost let them go out. It's sometimes hard to bring them back in. So I start young pups up pretty close so I can control the situation more. So you're working at casting. You're working them at locating scent. But the biggest part of the scent that I do Is that I have, you know, I where my camp is located with the dogs, it's back in the woods. I mean, I don't, my neighbors are kayak wolves, (laughs) Um, probably bobcats, and and anything else is creeping around at night. (laughs) I told
1: you, you're living the dream. We always say that we are, but you're actually living it.
2: I'm blessed. I mean, that's all I can say is all I ever wanted was to get up in the morning, sit down with a cup of coffee and see nothing but woods.
1: And you're living it.
2: Um, yeah. I'm thankful. Like I said, I'm, I'm blessed for that. And I'm not a day goes by that. I don't appreciate it. So the dogs basically, how many times we teach our dogs to point on a lot of scent. And when you imprint a pup, you don't want to imprint on a lot. At least I don't. Um, I like to imprint on less. Because if you think, because I'm, you know, my focus is grouse hunting. And a grouse will run, and it doesn't, when, when they're running, they're not leaving much scent. So what that dog is doing, it's finding hot spots of scent. And then the scent fades. And then they're trying to cast and find another hot spot of scent. And each hot spot is where the bird held up or initially was. Then it runs so far back, and it's like, are they coming? Are they coming? Oh shoot, they're coming. I'm gonna retreat again. He keeps retreating, and that's where you get that stop, point, slowly release, cast, stop, point, slowly release, cast, and that that can continue over and over and over again sometimes. And so that takes patience. For many dogs, that's PhD work. So to teach a dog to be cautious on less scent to me makes more sense because a lot of scent is a is a slam dunk yeah so i do i do a lot of scent drags and by doing a scent drag basically i'm leaving whiff of scent here and there i don't care if my dog is winding or if it's tracking because the grouse runs through the woods under the foliage and you know especially in the early season you know I don't care how it gets it done just get it done
3: (laughs) Um,
1: that makes sense
2: you know and so i don't mind a dog that creeps crawls slinks looks like a cat uh (laughs) and stalks because if they know how to do this already and it's already in their genetics who am i to say no you have to stand perfectly still don't move. Let me go stomp all over the place. Maybe I can step on the bird and kick it up for you.
1: <laughs> yep. That's uh-huh. so true.
2: But the, but I couldn't do that in the guided hunt. You yeah. know, I couldn't get up. Fr- I'm not going to get out in front of those guys. I know I was hid behind the dog. <laughs> <laughs> so,
0: so, so to get back to the training, you say that you focus on less scent. You do a lot of drags and everything. Do you primarily train with just wild birds or do you do any pen raised birds or pigeons or anything like that?
2: I don't do so much pigeons. I have a friend that does some training for me and he starts with that and then he goes to quail. But there's a certain time of year you're not going to be training on wild birds. So you have to substitute that with some, you know, pen raised. And that's where my Johnny houses come in. The Johnny houses are not for let the dog come up and point a bird in the house or that's around the base of the house. (laughs) Not that. I want you all of a sudden way out to pick that scent up. And then we work then at the cautiousness in the control of stop, start. Sound familiar? Stop, start. Stalking. What does a grouse do? Stop, start, release, calm. And what you see with a lot of dogs because they are used to a certain level of scent is that they get panicky when that scent keeps fading on them. You know, and that bird's running. Because when they were initially trained, bird was always in one place. You know, they put the pigeon out there, they, they put the quail down or whatever. So some dogs, that's all they know is that that scent's not supposed to keep dissipating, you know? So okay, and they get it again. Holy crap, it went again, it disappeared again.
1: Yeah, you're you're describing on, my dog right now. I lost scent. I'm gonna freak out and <laughs> make bigger circles until I find it again. Oh, why did I just scare this you bird know? away?
2: Oh yeah, I was in your <laughs> yep. So that's that's what I'm trying to do is I, I, I work with the Johnny House and that scent casting out. You also can teach the dog to only go in so far, and I really don't have to with most of these. I mean, a couple times they'll go in when they're young, and then what I'll do is I also get them so that they're... All I'll say, let it go, because I'm not going to take them right up to the Johnny house. So we just let it go, walk away from the scent, but you know what the reward was? The scent, not the bird. We do not have the bird numbers we used to have 10 years ago, and, and you know, grouse. So I would have rather have the dog expecting the reward being the scent because then he's content versus I got to have a snoop snoopful of the scent and be, you know, so close. But I like having a heads up that there's something in the area if the dog starts acting birdie. Because he'll give me a heads up and say, "Hey, I've got scent." And when I was doing a lot of guiding, I could start getting the guys in position, and we would start working. And I could look ahead and say, "Okay, you're going to have to slide up and to the left a little bit," and I'll I'll whistle you when don't go so far because there's a cedar swamp up ahead. We want to sh- block that bird, and and so that's that's part of it is that the. Sooner I know that we have a bird nearby, the better off I can control. try to control the situation and keep the bird from going into the darkness, into the swamps or the tag alders, and keep them more in play where we can actually work it.
1: Sounds like you're building a lot of composure into the dog and just
2: mm-hmm. learning
1: how to stay calm and not get overly excited just because they've... Yeah they've gotten onto bird sense you talked about uh casting how do you how do you control the casting do you use check cords at all or are you using the scent of the bird to control no. that
2: um well they have to cast even when they don't have scent so we start in the woods um a lot of times i'll pair up a young young pup with a dog that already knows how to cast and it's just consistency If Let's just say I got a dog that starts casting too much to the left or too much to the right. And like with sled dogs, the sled dogs could be left or right-handed, and we would continually switch sides so that they would learn to run on either side. Um, nothing worse than a sled dog that only wanted to run on one side, because then you were stuck with it.
0: Uh, I, but I say that all the time. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> but. You know, if, if a dog, for instance, casts too much on the left, especially a young pup, he's spending, you know, and it doesn't take long to make a pattern, you know, if it keeps happening. Uh, all of a sudden, I'll start, I'll start correcting him, and whistle him, and I'll shift right. Whistle him, shift right, shift right. And then all of a sudden, they're shifting right, then I shift back to the left. And it's like you have the dog casting in front of you when it's a puppy, like when it's 12 to you know, 13, 14 weeks old or maybe even younger. And, it you know, puppies tend to run straight lines when they're in the beginning. So what I tend to do is as the puppies run in straight line, I'll all of a sudden go left, call it, and it switches over by in front of me again. Then I'll do go back to the right. And, you know, as I'm going back to the right, I'm starting to call it a little quicker. And next thing you know, after doing this drill for some time, I've got a dog that's casting and uh yeah so you just you just work on it because the puppy and if you all you do is train on trails that's hard because now you're asking for that pup to bust the brush and to go in and little puppies don't brush brush well Uh 'cause because they hit something and let's you know they're flipped back so what i did is when we harvested a bunch of aspen up there i had about a maybe an acre, half, two acres at most, um, I had them bulldoze all the trash out of it. So when the aspen regenerated, it was a cleaner floor, and then i have cut holes for the puppies. So what I do then is you get the initial scent on the edge, and then gradually I start bringing scent farther in. And all it takes is a couple times for them all of a sudden uh, they'll have scent in there, and next thing you know, where's the hole? And you get a puppy, start looking for a hole. Um, and that's what a lot of our dogs do. They look for a hole, you know, to to go off left or right. And I start out, you know, scent for me is huge. You know, a huge part of working, whether it's quail, whether it's grouse or whatever, it's looking for that scent and then printing it at a very early age. We call it, you know, a lot of people call it opening up their nose. Um, and you know, if they always expect a certain amount, it's really rough to undo that and to teach them patience to be happy with less. But it sort of sounds like people, um, <laughs> you know, you know, it's it, best analogy I can do is think of a parent that takes a child to the can to, to the grocery store, and on the way out, there's there's the candy bar stand and oh, you want a candy bar. Okay. Next time kids halfway to the shopping and they're thinking, I wonder if I'm going to get another candy bar. (laughs) So he starts bugging his mom, maybe 20 feet from the checkout. Next time he's bugging his mom on the way in to the grocery store. And the next time they haven't even gotten out of the car. And then the time (laughs) after before, you know, the next time it's like they haven't even left in the house. Am I going to get a candy bar? That's right. So it's basically, and you never do the same thing every day. You never put the bird in the same place every day. You never put the scent in the same place every day. You keep them checking, you know, looking and checking. And you also connect your scent. Basically, if you have scent here and you want it, you got to get this rhythm going with them, you know, the casting rhythm. And so you put scent out here, then you let them go a little ways and you put them out again and you get them going again and you start connecting and connecting. And next thing you know, you got a young pup that's maybe 20 weeks old. He's searching for that scent because you've connected it. You know, his wife now is becoming, I got to find the scent. Yeah. So, I don't know if it makes sense, but that's what I do.
1: No, it does. And it, uh, what makes the most sense is that they're satisfied just with the scent. I've got one question when you're putting out the scent, are you using you know a frozen grouse or are you using one of your pen raised quail? How are you putting the scent out?
2: Um, I'm putting out the scent with quail um is what I'm doing, and I'm using feathers initially with a little pup and when I've had people come up to get, you know, we're picking out a pup that I'll start out for them. And, and most fun thing is to take a young pup and never hit scent before. And it's feeling it, the grass under its feet and the big world around it. And you let a few feathers just cast down in, a little bit in front of it. And it hits that. The eyes go big. And you, <laughs> nine times out of ten, they start snorting. It's, you know, they look up at, and they got a feather stuck to the tip of their nose. It's cute as heck. And and, that, and so what you do then is that you just keep, you let it go a little ways and it's starting to look. And then you just drop a few more feathers. Well, now it's looking farther. And scent to me is scent. Um, you know, you know they are searching for scent and I can put grouse on there but i found that i can make it work either way the biggest thing is it's like having all the technique for a layup and doing a slam dunk and the last part is where you push the ball through the net everything leading up to that has to be right right you know makes and, sense. and that's what that's what we're trying to do up here at least um that makes sense get it right
0: you know we this is real interesting to me because you know you you don't hear a lot of people training their dogs this this way and I we could talk for hours on, on this and we may have to have you back on just to talk more training specific stuff as it relates to grouse and and you're focusing on the scent instead of the the bird reward because that's real interesting but I know uh, we we do have to plug your scout and hunt app and but before that I do have a <laughs> real quick question for you. Um, yeah. have you messed with any of those, those grouse trials up North? I I've never seen one myself, but I'm curious if you do those or any trialing that yeah. really
2: no, no, it's just me and my slinking setters. <laughs> <laughs>
3: and, and the fact is you, I mean, you
1: train to hunt. I mean, I, I don't think you really care yeah. about trials, right?
2: No, I don't have anything to prove. Um, you know, and and I don't get me wrong, I like competition just as much as the next one. I'm, I am competitive. But I guess the thing is, is there's something to be said for watching dogs do really good bird, bird work on grouse. You know, and just like us, they have bad days like we do. Um, but when it all comes together, I couldn't care if you shoot the bird or not. What, that dog was satisfied with the work and with the bird flying off and okay. You know, they still know how to retrieve. Uh you know, some of my dogs retrieve great and some of the older lines didn't retrieve quite as well, but I would say now it's, it's almost getting to like 90% of retrieving. Um, and you know, that's all watching a dog work. A bird is huge. That's just to me is everything.
0: Well, I got a question for you off what you just said that you said you don't have anything to prove. Have you been down to the Southern Appalachia grouse hunting or you you only stay (laughs) up
3: North?
2: I think I'd be out of breath trying to climb those (laughs) mountains. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm thankful it's flat where I'm at. Um, What you guys? I mean, here's the thing: a lot of people from up north don't realize it. I've seen it. I've mapped a lot of stuff down there. Yeah. Um. You know, Greenbrier County and Fayette and Randolph and all through there. That's rough, rough, rough areas. You don't have to tell anyone what
1: state those counties are in. Okay.
2: (laughs) Oh yeah, they're in New Jersey. They're perfect. (laughs) (laughs) But my point is, is that. Or North Carolina, down through there. Yep. The passion that you guys have for hunting, I don't think a lot of people up north realize what you had, unfortunately, what was lost, and what you keep going after because you love it.
1: Yep, absolutely. So, and it is uh, it is difficult. It's, it's steep. It's, uh, hopefully it's thick cover, but sometimes it's, it's hard to find. So tell us how. Rhododendron. Yeah. Rhododendron thickets. Those are fun. Um, mm-hmm.
2: tell Greenbrier us, I hate. Oh yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yep. I think I still have, uh, scars on my knees from last season. <laughs> tell us how scout and hunt, uh, can help us hone in on some of those good areas that you're talking about and, and not just County specific, but you know, how, how's it helped me <laughs> out as a hunter?
2: <laughs> Let's just say you're going to go to Michigan, okay? And you know you're going to go to Michigan to hunt. Long trip. Uh, What it's going to do is it'll start out. It gives you the whole state data of the aspen that's basically 8 to 16 years of age. Uh, So you have a pinpoint of that aspen within public lands. So you have the property boundary of the public lands, so you know where you're at. Um, It goes on your phone, your tablet, or your PC. And then it tells you the habitat that's around that aspen cut, be it lowland conifer, tag alder, spruce, hardwoods, you know paper birch, whatever, or older aspen. So you can literally be twenty hours away and know where you're going to hunt. It uses the position or the GPS of your phone to show your point in relationship to the habitat. so you could create a waypoint just like a GPS and take the coordinates off it, throw it in Google maps, drive right to it. Um, So Google might not take you on an old Tote Road 2 track though. So you might want to get to the place where you turn off the main road and drive in. You can measure your distance of a hunt. Um, Okay, we're going to go up this way. We're going to come around that way and that way. Uh, Probably by noon, it's going to be really hot. So how long is it? Am I going to be near water? You're looking at the habitat uh, and you know, you don't need a legend because all you do is tap on the shape. The shape flashes at you, and it says S, and you pull up the tab, and it's like having a little. Okay, this is black spruce, and it's this age or something. And you know, the, it gives you information. It's all at your fingertips, and you can sit at home and look for new places that you want to hunt.
1: Yeah, I was going to say that that eliminates the the everything you describe is usually how I've spent the first few hours. If I'm hunting a new area, trying to figure out where the new cuts are and like how I'm going to get there and all that stuff. So it really adds a whole, a whole nother
3: day of hunting.
2: Well, and it gives you options. Let's say you break it down even farther than that. Okay. We're going to be staying at this place here. I want to hunt within about an hour radius and you're looking at that and you're saying, okay, now I need some spots for when it's going to be, the dew's not going to come off real quick. I need some spots it's gonna rain, uh, where it's going to rain, where we're going to be hunting closer to the conifer, you know, because those birds are under something. Uh, it gives you options. Or maybe you say, you know, I'm looking at this as 2010-42, this cut. 2010 means it's 10 years old. And 42 is your acreage. You already know, so you can pick and choose your age range of what you want to hunt. Oh, I'd rather probably look for some woodcock, so I'm going to go to some eight-year-old habitat. You have options. But then it also has the marginal habitat, the the habitat that's just aged out. This is where the population used to be. And then as things get older, it starts to open up. Then these birds are seeking habitat of, the, of a specific density, and That's where they survive, so you can see where possible habitat shifts are occurring when okay, this cluster of habitats aged out now, where's a good prime cut around there that these birds would look for to replace what's getting too old?
1: what I like is it still gives you the ability to think for yourself it's It's literally like mm-hmm. someone at a gas station saying, well, there's you know this was cut up there about ten years ago." Go up there and try it. That might be a good spot. You're not just putting a little pen on a map that says, here's a spot for grouse if it's raining or if it's overcast or whatever the the, right. the deal is. it's. I still have to think for myself.
2: You're only as good as what you understand habitat and as what you understand with running your dog and how much you understand what you're hunting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So it doesn't, I like that because it doesn't, it doesn't take that away from me. Um, I still want to think through all those things as a hunter. I just don't want, you know, the answers. I don't want the full answers. I just want a little steer in the right direction.
2: Yep. Well, and it, it saves you time not going down some two track, getting stuck, trying to turn around and you buried <laughs> part of the truck and, and then you're still trying to figure out and there just went this one day of your vacation, which you only had so many days to begin with.
0: Absolutely. Right i know i've used it uh i've used it for wisconsin trip i've used it here locally in tennessee and and it's steered me in the right direction you know tennessee grouse is hard to come by and the the one grouse after four years i didn't get it exactly the first shot that i I used your app but i got it very close to an area that was shown on your map so it, it was uh it worked out for me down here and the wisconsin trip so it's a great app. Oh, so why don't you tell everybody where they can find it at and, and find more information?
2: Yep. You're going to go to the mobile If you go and get on the internet, you could type in scout and hunt. And what you can do is, uh, you can look for scout and hunt, scout dash and scout hunt. And you can also look under, uh, mobile hunting maps as well for scout and hunt and just type in the names it, you know sometimes yeah. you go with all these addresses but that's what you're looking for is scout n as in nancy and hunt yep and then or mobile hunting maps
1: awesome um, well and we've we've enjoyed uh hearing about your dogs and your methods and and everything else we've really enjoyed it thanks for coming on tonight
2: Oh, well thank you for having me hopefully i didn't bore you too bad
1: no not at all not at all we thoroughly enjoyed it
2: <laughs> we appreciate
1: it
0: you have a good night and uh stay away from that snow
2: all right i think that probably we're getting down to the last of the year so that's good i hope so
1: yeah yeah it's it's late <laughs> enough you guys ought to start getting some warm weather
2: Yep, yep. Well, it's been really good. Thanks so much for having me on. It was
1: fun talking with you guys. For sure. Thanks, and You have a good night. You too. Take
2: care.
1: Thank you for listening to GDIY. If you enjoy this podcast, please remember to take a moment to rate, review, and share with a friend. Also, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram under Gundog It Yourself. If you really enjoy this podcast and would like to contribute even more to future content, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash gun dog yourself thanks again and happy hunting